Hi, everyone. I'm Andrew. And I'm Michael. And this is the Endurance Innovation Podcast. Hey, everybody, and welcome to our show. Uh, Joining us today is uh, running coach Steve Palladino. And Steve is here to help us understand a lot about running with power and using power to both train and race um, running races and as well as the tr- the run leg of triathlon races. Now, Steve's got a long and storied uh, past with running, including a pretty spectacular uh, marathon PR of uh, two hours and 16 minutes. And uh, now Steve's working as a coach with uh, a fairly broad range of athletes uh, from uh, recreational folks to some uh, fairly advanced uh, individuals as well. So, uh, Steve, welcome to the show. I'm sure you have a lot to add to that uh, introduction. Oh, thank you very much. I'm looking forward to speaking with you guys. Uh, looks like we have some great topics to cover. So, um, anyway, my background, uh, I, I had a, a short elite career post-collegiately, and uh, like you said, I, my, uh, my best PR is uh, 216 in the marathon, which was set in 1979 at Boston Marathon, and uh, that's a long, long time ago, and that's back in the days when you know we didn't have GPS, we didn't have GPS watches, we didn't have power, <laughs> we ran off of RPE, and, and that's about it. And no water on the – well, there might have been water on the course, but I don't remember. I certainly didn't drink any and no fueling, so it's a different era. Wow, okay. Um, yeah, also uh, 49.15 uh, 10-mile uh, PR. And uh, it's, it's curious that when, when – you know, how Boston is slightly downhill going through the first – 13 miles or so right. and uh my my pr for an open 10 miles 49.15 but i split it 49.59 uh at boston <laughs> on your so, way to a 216 <laughs> marathon huh exactly 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 so um so yeah i had a brief uh, uh post-collegiate uh, elite career i ran for adidas and then then i went into medical school, uh, became a podiatrist, and uh, sort of specialized in um, in uh, sports medicine as well as foot and ankle surgery, uh, and retired from that in 2016. And uh, because I was retired from that, it gave me more t- opportunity to start doing uh, coaching. It also happened to coincide when, with, uh, when Stride came out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I should add that, that – um, when I got to about 45, I started having in, injuries with my running career. I was getting injured every six months or so. So I started uh, cycling. Um, and that was 2002 was when I bought my first power tap. Uh, so I've been involved with power since at least 2002. You were an early adopter then because 2002 is fairly early in the cycling power meter scheme of things. You just you just encapsulated me <laughs> in a nutshell as an early adopter. So so but I've been involved with uh, following stuff uh, uh regarding power, training with power. I was, you know, back when Cycling Peaks first came out, I, I was an early adopter of that. So I've been involved with power analytics for um, you know, over 15 years. Um very cool. So I did that uh 
And then when Stride came out with the first power meter, uh, their first version, which was a chest strap version, uh, I, having been with power for on the cycling side, I said, that makes a lot of sense to me, go, uh, running with power. Uh, so I started uh, utilizing that with some of the athletes I was working with at the time. And, uh, and shortly thereafter, exclusively turned to uh, coaching with power uh, for runners. So uh, since then, I've, I've uh, coached with power for you know, probably over 50 athletes uh, at various times. And I've also done some consulting for, um, for some elite athletes, you know, sub four minute milers and sub 213 marathoners and sub 14 minute 5,000 meter runners. So, um, so I've had an opportunity to look at a lot of running power as well. Uh, and uh, there you go. There's, there's a little bit of my background. Hearing all that makes me feel pretty self-conscious about my own background. Now I've got nothing to compare. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that's a great introduction and uh, an excellent segue into our first topic of discussion. And that is um, really, uh, uh, I would like you to explain, Steve, for our listening audience, um, how running power meters work and specifically, so Steve keeps mentioning Stride. Uh, I think it's very fair to say that Stride is the, is the, clear market leader at this point in uh, running power meters. The, that market is much, much less crowded than the cycling power meter market, um, with, with Stride being the obvious, uh, obvious go-to for most folks. Uh, but the important thing to know about the Stride power meter and what it looks like, Steve mentioned that the first generation is the, was a chest strap, the second generation and the third generation, which was just very recently released, they are both foot pods, so worn uh, in the laces of your shoe. Uh, so the, the important thing to understand, and we'll get into the differences between cycling and uh, running power meters, is that it's an indirect measurement. So you're not um, measuring force directly and then using the, you know, the power formula of, um, of uh, force times distance divided by time. Does that sound right, Andrew? Yeah. Yep. That's <laughs> yep. force times speed or force times distance yeah. divided by time. Same thing. Angular yeah, velocity. Perfect. Or angular yeah. velocity. That's right. Um, so it's not a direct measurement. So it's a little bit, uh, it's a little bit less easy to understand. But uh, you know, hopefully Steve can uh, help us do just that. And for anyone curious, um, I would say the the initial example of using it as a chest strap, that's a pretty obvious indication that it's not a direct measurement there. If you're measuring your running power from your chest strap, <laughs> then there's something going on with the calculations there. Right. So I, before I before I answer the question, I will I, just for the listeners, my perception is that Running power is where cycling power was about when I adopted it. Um, the first uh, tune, uh, well, SRM started in, in about 1989, 1990. The first tune, which became PowerTap, uh, started in 1999. So, you know, uh, 2002 um, was, you know, I was an early adopter. Basically, you know, at that point in time with cycling power, you know, it was geeks and engineers. Right. And physiologists, and uh, and it wasn't until you know 2005, 2010 that it really became um, adopted in the pro cycling world. I think running power is at that same 2000, 2001, 2002 cycling power um, um, level of penetrance into the market. Uh, now, 
uh, now to answer the question, um, a running power meter uh, takes um, metrics uh, from, well, for stride in particular, takes it from accelerometers and gyroscope. There's a lot of stuff in the innards uh, uh, of the, uh, the pod, uh, two of which are uh, gyroscope and um, accel three, three accelerometers, 3D accelerometers. So it takes that data and then calculates power um, in terms of watts per kilogram natively. Um, so it's, it's similar to cycling power meter where they take, say, uh, uh, a, a crank or pedal-based uh, power meter in cycling. It takes the force data and puts it through an algorithm to produce uh, power. Um, uh, running and that, uh, using the analogy uses the accelerometer and gyroscope data into an algorithm and calculates uh, power. Um, so uh, it's, it's really a matter of how good is the algorithm and how good is the, the, uh, the raw data coming from accelerometers and, and gyroscopes. Um, now, if you want to expand the discussion beyond stride to something like uh, Garmin or Polar, where they're risk-based and, uh, and um, use GPS, they'll use that data into their, their algorithm to produce a, a, a power figure. So there's the big difference is, is the source, the source uh, metrics or source data uh, instruments that, that feed the algorithm. Um, and of course, the algorithm is probably different as well. Um, but the key thing is if, if the, the uh, source metrics are good and the, uh, and the algorithm is good, then you have a, a, a pretty good uh, piece of data in the power, the running power. So let me interrogate that a little bit, Steve. So uh, obviously in a direct force power meter like we see on the bike, you have it's fairly easy to measure force or torque, roughly the same thing yeah. in our in our, you know, in terms of the utility of it. So is uh, is an indirect uh, running power meter is that basic, is that you taking the the mass of the runner in this case and the acceleration data from your gyroscopes and accelerometers and then calculating force from that you know f equals ma sort of understanding is that how you understand it to work no no actually it's um, similar but it, the uh, you don't need the mass of the runner um, Force, force times acceleration. You can get rid of mass comes out in the in the uh, in in the calculation. Um, it cancels itself out. In other words, um, you, if you're computing in terms of a watts per kilogram uh, number, you can arrive at that without actually having a mass okay, sure. input. Now that said, Stride um, has has a data input. Um, which is the mass of the runner, the weight of the runner, uh, which then it, uh, it does a, um, a, it's like a multiplying factor to whatever the result is. So if you get, let's say you're, you're running at five watts per kilogram um, and you weigh uh, 70 kilograms, you're going to get 350 it. watts. It, it multiplies whatever that native number is and you get your power number displayed on your watch. Okay. 
Yeah, I'm just taking a second to process all this. It's quite interesting um, how that's all essentially non-dimensionalized by mass, or at least initially for the calculations. Uh, but when I hear the just the example of the technology and the accelerometers and the gyroscopes used, that to me sounds a lot like identical hardware that's used in the cadence sensors or the, the pace sensors that people often use for running. So I guess the, the first question would be, why did it take so long for this to be developed? Um, and then the second part of that would be, what what kind of variables do we have if we're doing these indirect measurements? So how would it vary from person to person and how can we correlate those to average population I values? suspect that part B to that question is, is a really complicated answer. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. And, uh, and you sort of get out of my, my uh, expertise is I'm, I'm more of a medical background than an engineer, but I, you know, I've got a decent understanding. The other thing too is, is, you know, strides algorithm is proprietary. Um, I, it's based on stuff that's in the literature, but uh, I don't know the, the specifics of their algorithm. Um, so it's, it's, it's hard to, uh, to comment on those, those specifics. Yeah, fair enough. Okay, that's, that's no problem. That wasn't really a fair question because you well, were the one who initially developed it. But then in terms of why did it take so long, I, I guess it just took us smart enough people that were motivated enough. Uh, and I'm thankful that they did actually. 100%. But to speak to some of uh, part of that, part of the question that Andrew posed was the inter individual differences and as well as, you know, factors affecting that measurement. So I think, um, Steve, we can talk a little bit about uh, um, a little bit about those inter those individual differences. And for, for that to be uh, you know, for, for to give people a little bit of um, a background on that conversation, uh, when you are talking about power, and I think it was um, it was um, Steve Magnus who wrote this article. Uh, I forget where I read it, but he was he his question on this on this topic was, "What exactly are you measuring?" And again, to use that cycling comparison, in cycling, you know exactly where you're measuring. You're measuring the mechanical output power of the rider, and if you measure it in different parts of the different parts of the drivetrain, you kind of have some correction factors, but that's essentially where you're measuring. But when you're measuring running power, what exactly are you measuring? And the reason this is a very complicated question is because um, anyone who's studied a little bit of physiology and understands how running works, there's a lot of stored elastic energy in the, you know, the soft tissues of the body, the, the, the muscles and the tendons that is then, that is stored and re, and then re-expended with every single stride. So there's a lot of energy that is required to, you know, metabolic energy, let's say, so internal energy that's required to store that elastic energy, but that energy isn't lost. It's then, re it's then recouped on the, you know, at the next toe off. So uh, perhaps you can talk a little bit about that. Oh, that's a great, that's a great point. That's, um, and it's, it's uh, interesting that what stride does is it, uh, it does not include that elastic component in its calculation of power. It separates it out, reports uh, leg spring stiffness. Okay, okay. Um, the, uh, now, juxtapose that to Garmin and Polar. Garmin and Polar typically report, you know, about 28, 29, 30% higher than does Stride. If you run a parallel, and I have a, uh, at least one runner that, that has both, and so I've, got to, I've had the opportunity to see the data. 
the, the, the squiggles and, and movements of power based on effort um, are, are nearly identical. But Garmin and Polar will produce this, this value that's 30% mm -hmm. higher. Why? Because they fold that elastic component in to their, uh, their reported right. power. Stride does not. It, Stride just um, reports what, what probably best aligns with the uh, metabolic demand um, and, and, and it reports leg spring stiffness or the elastic component separately. Okay. Now, the, these are these are. This is one of the the issues that you know that uh, you know DC Raymaker, uh, Al, Alex Hutchinson, they they discuss this, and this is one of the things that their you know their reservations are that that the uh, power reporting um, standards are not unified yet. They're not standardized, um, and that that's where we are. We're at the beginning of the the, the development of running power. Uh, my feeling is that that um, Stride does it pretty well, and here's here's how I uh, I look at how I look at Stride power or any other power for that matter. Number one, is it reliable? Um, and be before getting into that, let me just explain what I'm going to uh, talk about, um, and I'll use this this uh, this example. If you put a standard blood pressure cuff on and the person's sitting and relaxed and you repeat their blood pressures, it's going to be relatively the same value each time you test it. That's reliability. Now, if you put a uh, oversized cuff on that person's arm, you're going to get a different value. It's not going to be the same value. It may not be what's called a, uh, a valid instrument value, but it will have reliability. If you repeat the blood pressure measurement with that oversized cuff, it's going to be the same value. It's just going to be different than the, the standard cuff. So to me, for coaching runners, reliability is number one. Is it going to be the, the, the same thing for the same relative effort each time? And my experience is that, yes, it is. Now, the other part that's important to me is how good is it at reflecting metabolic demand? Because that's really the, that's the advantage is it's reflecting metabolic demand. Agreed. Um, and if you look at, at stride versus VO2 and the studies that have been done, there is a pretty high correlation, you know, point, point 0.9 and above, point 0.9 to point 0.98 in various studies of the correlation between power running power by stride that is and vo2 um that to me is also important so we got reliability um over time um with a given runner and two we we have studies that that uh, verify that there's a high correlation between what's reported as power and the metabolic demand as as depicted by VO2. Hmm. That's interesting to hear. And that's, that's, that's encouraging too. Yeah. I, it's, that, those are very, two very important cornerstones for me, uh, uh, utilizing power. If they weren't there, then it's like, it's a fool's errand. It's, it's not worth going there. But, uh, with those two components, at least I, I can, in my mind, uh, 
I can deal with the fact that my reality may not be reality. I can deal with my runner's 350 watts may not be exactly 350 watts, but that 350 watts is the same as 350 watts tomorrow and 350 watts the next day. And, um, and it, if the person goes to 400 watts, um, that's reflective of metabolic demand. So those are the two cornerstones that for, for me to utilize stride. I really like that explanation and that uh, that breakdown of the elastic energy versus the metabolic energy. And for me, I 100% agree that metabolic energy is what you should be gauging your, your effort on. Uh, the other side of things, though, would be as a coach, and if you're looking for performance improvement, can you impact that elastic energy that you're recovering? How do you, how do you change the stiffness through weight training, through other things like that? Uh, that's a cool question too. Um, and the, the answer is, uh, I have, I found that it is responsive to training, uh, leg spring stiffness. Now leg spring stiffness is, um, is the term that we're utilizing strides term for that elastic component. So the literature, the literature says that that leg stiffness does respond to things like plyometrics or weight right. training. And they've found changes in, in, in leg stiffness, um, which is equivalent to that elastic component with things like plyometrics or weight training. Another piece of literature is correlating leg stiffness with running economy, the, the actual physiologic measurement of running economy. And there is a correlation um, in runners that higher uh, leg stiffness, um, higher tissue elasticity, uh, better running economy. So, yes, you can, um, you can, it is an actionable metric, um, and it does have an impact, at least according to the literature, on running economy. And uh, that's one of the things we want to improve. Now, I can also relate a, a small uh, study that I've, I uh, happened upon um, with some young runners, some high school runners, where I was coaching them in the, uh, the off-season and then their, their coach um, were, was coaching them in-season. Um, and I had them doing uh, plyometrics on a routine basis for this reason. Um, and then they went into their, their, uh, their track season and plyometrics is not included in the program at, at the, uh, okay. the, the high school level for these athletes. And what I found is in these athletes, their leg spring stiffness dropped. And I saw that on my, I use WKO, uh, for, uh, for, uh, my analytics. I saw that where, oh, wow, these guys, are, their leg spring stiffness is, stopped, is, is dropping. And I said, hey, you guys got to start getting back on your legs, on your plyometrics. They did. And then, boop, there you, you see this uh, leg spring stiffness starting to respond again. So, um, yeah, I think it is actionable. Um, my other impression is that it is um, the, the – the contribution to performance benefit, let's this performance being how fast you go mm -hmm. in a 10K. 
or how fast do you go in a half marathon? Um, the, it is a small percentage of, of the performance gains that you might get. And it's, it's a slow developing. So you got to do pl plyometrics, weight training um, to get a change. The change is not going to be big. It might be 1% or 2% improved performance improvement, and it takes a while. Where in contrast, training the person metabolically, in other words, you're training their running, they're tra training them to, to run faster and further, um, those percentage of gains in performance are greater. So the focus, sh rightly, should be more on the run training and really think of plyometrics and weight training as supplemental. They're going to add, but don't put too much time into that Versus I totally agree train. with you on that side, Steve. Uh, but you know, it, it it's yeah. it, we must be fair to say though that uh, strength training has added benefits like injury resistance, which is a huge factor in, uh, especially in the you know the adult onset population. Absolutely. Actually, probably for everybody. You know, if you're hurt, you're not training, and then you can't be doing metabolic training, right? Yeah, I think I think uh, weight training, the right kind of weight training, and uh, plyometrics. Um, in a sound, uh, in a not excessive way, um, I think those should be incorporated in virtually every runner's uh, program. I agree. I want to wrap up our conversation on the kind of the uh, the the appeal of power, the use case of power, by asking Steve about um, the comparison between using power for um, pacing and and, and training and uh, the classic metric, which would have been pace. Cool. Um, so the, really actually a classic, if you really wanted to be, go, go way back, classic is RPE, RPE fair but, enough. um, or, or, uh, split times on a track. Um, so, so think of it this but way. RP, you have RPE is subjective. Of, if we're talking about classic subjective metrics, so like split times on a track, let's say, or, or pace, same thing. Right. Really. Right. So let, let, let me, let me just uh, start from the broad and I'll narrow it down. So the, um, there's four ways at this point of of uh, monitoring uh, your your uh, effort, and um, that would be RPE, uh, subjective, of course, um, uh, pace, heart rate, power. So there's yep. four things. So really, we're more than just comparing power to pace, but going to the specific of that pow power versus pace. So. Power has a great advantage in that it's portable to uh, to ter any terrain. Well, within limits, you know, not twenty percent grades or 25 percent <laughs> grades in mountain running, but but within limits, you get rolling terrain and so, uh, you know five ten percent grades. It's it's portable. So let me give you an example. Um, let's say you're having a uh, a runner doing four um, hundreds on a track and let's say they're doing them at uh, whatever, uh, let's say 116% of, of FTP, um, which is about sure. mile race pace. So you're doing 400s on a track, let's say that number turns out to be 400 watts. Um, let's say we want to, we're, we're training the same workout, but we're gonna do it in cross, for cross country training, we're gonna have them do it on a hill. So we have them go to a local hill, it's about 5% grade, 
what do we tell them if yeah, we're yeah, on pace? We don't know. We don't know. We don't. We don't. We say, hey, we're going to go. You're going to go about mile race effort. Yep. RPE. That's an old parlance, right? With power, you go. You're going to you're going to do this at 400 watts. You did it 400 watts on the track. You're going to do it 400 watts here. Mm-hmm. So it's portable. Number one. That's an excellent point. Um, yeah. So um, the other advantage is that um, so the other thing is you get more than just power. Um, the metric that I think is the second most important metric to power is running effectiveness. Running effectiveness is basically your speed to power ratio. How much speed you get for the power that you're expending. How um, um, effective that you at converting power to speed. You get that with power. You don't get that with sure. with um, pace. Now, let me give you an example. I have a runner who is doing six times uh, six times mile on the track, and uh, he was you know at a certain power, um, and he was hitting power, and uh, rep number four he goes, hey, I'm 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 going slower. But I'm still hitting power. I go, yeah, just keep going. <laughs> keep running that power. What was happening is as he was fatiguing, his running effectiveness was declining. So if you were if he was doing by pace, right, he was actually going to be running at a uh, if he's trying to hold pace, his power was going to be going up if his running effectiveness is declining. And so he's starting to get uh, his effort is starting to get too high to maintain that particular pace. Um, again, we'll go back to power versus VO2 correlating fairly well. I want to train to that metabolic demand. So I want constant power. I don't care if the running effectiveness is declining at the end. Um, of course, you know, if it's declining too much, I want to pull the, the runner from the workout. But, um, yeah, if they're, if they're declining, they're, they're, the pace is declining, but they're still hitting the same power, fine, let's keep going. So there are some differences. Uh, one other little thing, um, well, maybe not so little, um, in stride, stride's um, uh, measurement of distance, it's recording of distance from the pod is more accurate than GPS. I don't know if you know of... Uh, uh, the blogger uh, Fell Runner. He, he, uh, he does a lot of running blogs. Uh, Fell Runner does some some good stuff and some good research. He did some independent research where uh, he's looking at distance versus various um, various other pods and also GPS. And the Stride Pod was more accurate in uh, recording distance than than GPS. Sure. Uh, and you know this. If you're running on a track, sometimes GPS will cut angles and you don't Absolutely. get it right. And so that's the other thing. Uh, if you're running with a GPS watch and you're running by pace, you're going to have less accuracy than than the pod if you're running by pace. In fa- fact, some runners buy Stride simply for the for the, the better reporting of of pace and and distance. They're, it sort of irks me a little bit because they're missing out <laughs> on this whole thing called power, but they are buying it because it's more accurate. So, you know, it, there's a sort of a little side tangent on on 
on power versus pace, at least the, the stride pod sure. produces better pace too. Yeah, that, that, there's definitely value. And also, I mean, in uh, if you're running in an urban environment, uh, you know, you get a pretty poor GPS signal in amongst tall buildings. And if you're running, let's say, and well, this might be a good segue, but if you're running trails, which is something that both Andrew and I are getting in, a little bit more into, uh, if you're doing things like switchbacks, the GPS just clips those um, clips the the distance there because it only samples every so often right. and it's only accurate to such and such a thing. So when when it smooths out tracks, it it robs you of distance. <laughs> yep. Yep. Exactly. Yeah, that's um, very interesting. Like the pace versus effectiveness. Um, so when I when I hear that, I think, okay, running on different surfaces, that's going to have a different impact on things. So would that capture, would essentially, if you're running on a soft surface, so you use the example of cross country, uh, say you're running on grass that's kind of got a spongy uh, dirt underneath it because it's been raining. Um, would that essentially come into play in the leg stiffness or part of the calculation for leg stiffness? Or is that, uh, how would that be reflected in the output of the, the actual power meter itself? Or would it just be kind of disappearing? Okay, well, let's handle that, um, the power part, and then also the leg stiffness part. Well, let me answer both of those. Um, leg stiffness does change with, with the firmness of the surface um, and also the, the, the cushioning right. of the shoes. Um, if you have a more cushioned shoe, you're going to have a, a higher leg spring stiffness. Oh, interesting. Typically. Okay. And... Uh, yeah, and um, and same thing with uh, with surfaces. Um, as you go into soft grass versus versus uh, a firmer material, you'll get some differences. Um, actually, I, I did a study back in the early days um, with some of my runners where I just had them alternate laps on the on the track versus the grass um, uh, in in field, and uh, and you know you can pick up subtle little changes there. So it. Um, your your reporting of leg spring stiffness uh, uh, does change depending on surface as well as uh, shoe cushioning. And you see, uh, for example, the Nike uh, 4% uh, shoes, very cushioning. And, and when we started looking at data between the shoes, uh, we weren't seeing much in terms of running effectiveness or power between that shoe and another racing flat, uh, but we were seeing a higher leg spring stiffness in in the Nike four percent shoe. Um, now, uh, now the power side of things, um, you you um, power in, in my experience and my runners have, have you know they've done tarmac, uh, asphalt, uh, uh, you know dirt roads, uh, trail. Uh, uh, track surface, uh, you know, all-weather track surface, um, and power does not vary that much in those circumstances. Um, where you get into problems, you know, and let me put it this way, it, it, the, the percentage difference is very small. Um, and in, in, it may be uh Small enough that it is uh, within the uh, the measurement error of the device itself, so it's a very small. And in in terms of runners reporting to me their RPE on the different surfaces versus the power, there's not much difference. Now, where you do get into difference differences are 
when you get in really soft. You're running on sa- sand, forget <laughs> about it. It's, it's not going to be an accurate value. Soft snow, forget about it. Uh, icy, really icy conditions without any uh, uh, grabbing spikes, um, uh, it makes a difference. Now, I've had runners run on 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 packed snow and icy stuff with with uh, with little spikes. You know, I forget the name of the, the yeah, like uh, a yak tracks or something like that. Yeah, like yeah, like a yak track, and really not much difference. Difference in leg spring stiffness, but not in power. Um, so, so what does that but, what yeah. does that tell you? So, if you have a, a difference in leg spring stiffness, but not a difference in power, what sort of conclusions are you drawing? Because you said the same thing. You saw you observed the same effect in going to a cushioned, uh, a heavy, a more heavily cushioned shoe like the Nikes? It, well, my interpretation is while leg spring stiffness is, is important and developing it is important, it, um, it is a, it's of smaller importance than power. So you, you get small changes in leg spring stiffness, um, depending on surface or, uh, depending on, on, uh, cushioning, um, in terms of impact, in terms of, uh, speed, running effectiveness, it doesn't show up to a great deal, maybe a little bit, but very small percentages. So it, I mentioned how running effectiveness is my second most important metric. Uh, leg, leg spring stiffness is probably down there around fourth or fifth, something like that in terms of importance, um, in terms of what I, I'm really monitoring. I'm, I'm looking at leg spring stiffness, not day to day, not shoe to shoe. I'm looking at how it's responding over weeks and months, really. Mm-hmm. I'm surprised it, it ranks so yeah. low. Um, I, I would have thought it would be a bigger contribution because as we were saying before, if, if Garmin's, for example, are reporting 30% higher, um, because it's such a large proportion of the overall, essentially the power going into driving you forward, even if it's not the exact metabolic cost, um, I would have thought it would be a bigger contribution. So I'm, I'm quite surprised to hear that, that it ranks so low. Yeah, uh, it's... Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if I'm communicating it well enough, but is that steep? Is that because it just takes it takes so much work to move that number meaningfully, and yeah, yep. you'd rather be putting that work into metabolic fitness? Does that make yep. sense? Yep. In other words, uh, it, it, uh, because it's so sensitive to to uh, uh, things like cushioning and um, and uh, soft surfaces and so forth, um, I'm, it, it's something that I I I don't follow day to day. I try not to um, get, you know, go down that rabbit hole too much. Now, um, as Andrew was saying, you know, yeah, you maybe, maybe you would expect a little bit more. And I thought maybe so, but, but uh, after following this stuff for, for, you know, several years now, um, it's, it's important, but it's not, really high in importance on my, my list. And that makes sense. And you have to, you know, as a, as a coach, you have to, or, you know, any kind of decision maker, you, you kind of have to uh, put your focus where, you know, you're going to make the greatest impact, right? That makes, I think that, to me, that makes perfect sense. Yep. You got to go yeah. where the money is, is, is one step. <laughs> exactly. So uh, along the same lines, uh, if you're dealing with someone who's a four foot strike runner versus a heel strike or mid foot strike, does that have big impacts there? No. Okay, so that no. that doesn't really show up in the power numbers at all. No, 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 it doesn't. 
Now, I, I'm sure that if Stride did uh, reported breaking forces like RunScribe does, you might you, you probably would see differences. Um, but you can get differing breaking forces even within a population of midfoot strikers. Um, and you know, breaking forces are you know correlated with with injury risk, of course. Um, uh, but but Stripe does not report that RunScribe does. Um, and uh, I'd love to see Stripe um, evolve. I'm sure it's easy for them to, to uh, report breaking forces. I do want to touch upon shoes real quick, and mostly because I've uh, I've been experimenting with shoes lately. Because I, for a while I've been running in the same shoes, and recently I've just been trying different ones. And uh, you know, there is I'm always thinking like, what's my RPE relative to my power? And uh, does the, do these shoes seem to change anything? Um, so that, that's my personal interest in the in the conversation. And then I've also heard anecdotally people who ride with stride run with stride. Um, you know, they'll they'll switch to the Nike four percent and they'll say, Oh, my my you know, power for pace has gone down. So, you know, or my running effectiveness essentially has gone up. Um, do is, does your experience bear that out, Steve? Um Specific to the four percent, or any shoes that you've t- any shoes that you've uh, you've looked at, oh, or you've actually looked oh, yeah, specifically. Yeah, you. It, that's one of the uh, that that's sort of a little uh, side tangent uh, advantage of of using something like running effectiveness, um, looking at a speed power ratio, yes. um, and evaluating shoes. And I, there are <laughs> you could see differences in shoes, the subtle. Not not right. big, you know, five percent differences, uh, but you can see, you know, one percent difference in 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 some shoes, two percent shoe per, uh, percent difference in running effectiveness, uh, which is is actually worth a lot of time for in a half marathon or a marathon. Oh, one hundred percent. And then if you think about how you know how much effort and money we as athletes we we sink into, you know, really marginal gains. Two percent is not not nothing. Oh, oh, it's big. Yeah. It's big, especially if you're an elite runner. Two percent is, is yeah. that's like a, that's like finding a treasure right For there. For sure, it's 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 a payday or or a, or a nothing day kind of yeah. difference. So, did the the shoes then the impact there? Would you find that the same shoe is more efficient for runners all across the board, or is it kind of tuning the shoe to your specific running style is what seems to work best? Yeah, I can't answer that from experience, but my my. Um, my intuition is that it's it's going to be specific to the runner's you know style, their foot strike, their fit, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think it's going to be an individual response. In other words, what you might see gains one runner between two shoes that another runner you don't see those those gains. Would you be comfortable t- sharing with us some of the models that you have found uh, across the board tend to do better than others? Uh, Again, that, that's that's something. If I, if I had that written down, or if something that I've actually recorded, which shoe is compared to the other shoe, I would give that to you. But I don't have that information. I respect that. That's a, that's a, yeah. <laughs> no, it's just that you know, runner will go, "Hey, I tried this shoe, I tried that <laughs> shoe. Here's here's the data." I look at the data and I go, "Well, I don't know which shoe is which, but the sh- the shoe that you." You know, shoe B is the one that cool. looks better. That's exciting. I, I think I'm gonna I've got some <laughs> testing in my near future because I've got you know I've got a stride and I got a whole lot of new shoes. So I guess one other part of this, and this is 
touching on my background, but uh, aerodynamics. I'm, I'm curious how that's calculated and how it comes into play for different uh, running efforts. Um, so, for example, if you're running into a headwind, will that actually show up in the power? Because I would think that the acceleration would be pretty similar uh, the way it'd be measured at the feet. Um, but you're going to have a much different effort that goes into pushing yourself forward. Yeah, just for context, um, this is a very relevant question because the new uh, Generation 3 uh, Stride FootPod that was recently released, specifically one of the biggest selling features of it, uh, it has a, few, a bunch of improvements, but the, the, the big improvement is that it now collects aerodynamic data. Uh, so it has a sensor that measures, I'm pretty sure it's zero yaw wind speed, similar to some of the on-the-bike sensors, and uh, now reports things like wind speed and uh, and uh, drag, and it now takes wind resistant or air resistance, including the wind, into account in its power calculation. That's why I think it's relevant because it is a, uh, an innovative device as far as these things go. Right. It's, it's a great question, and it is... Uh, like a current topic, uh, the uh, uh, version two of this ride, the foot pod that did not have uh, wind detection uh, incorporated, um, it, it would it would be you know off in, in high wind conditions. Now in low wind conditions, the impact is very small. Um, in low speed, it's uh, low running speed. It's it's very small. Uh, so the version two is 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 very effective unless you're running in you know uh, twenty mile per hour, fifteen mile per hour winds uh, consistently. Um, then then you're you're thrown off a little bit. But even then, you could do some corrections, um, and I've done that before. The new Stride does have uh, uh, a uh, a uh, another. Uh, uh, sensor for uh, picking up wind at the pot or air resistance actually because really what we're the power to overcome uh, wind is both the wind speed as well as the right. runner speed uh, so both of those things uh, play a role um, and so the the new pod has the advantage that um, it becomes more true to uh, to metabolic demand in windy conditions. So if you're running on a track and it's headwind on one side, tailwind on the other side, it, the old pod would uh, would overreport power in a tailwind and underreport power that makes in sense, a headwind. Yeah. The new pod, the new pod is uh, going to uh, reflect that um and also the new pod i mean just as a, another little tangent here new pod should be able to um you know if you're in a race let's say you're in a 5,000 meter race and uh you're you're out in front versus tucked in the pack it should be able to, to detect those uh those differences in the power to overcome um air the air resistance um i have just uh, now, uh, over the last, within the last week, have had runners starting to adopt the the new pod, and so uh, I I've now been able to actually see it in action, and it looks pretty pretty good. I you know I'm I'm reserving judgment, but based on what I've seen, um, 
the the guys that wrote the book, the, the Secret of Running, uh, um, uh, Van Dyke and Van Began, uh, they've done some studies in wind tunnel. Stride's done some wind tunnel study. DC Raymaker um, uh, uh, just put out an article where they were in the the uh, the, the wind tunnel with it, and it looks it looks good. And the data that I'm getting from runners looks good, but you know it's one of those things. I'm going to um, want to see more data uh, to really, uh, you know, have a, a high comfort level. But it looks it looks good. Um, look, maybe I can share with you for a moment. I just had a runner do a, a, a CP test, um, a critical power test, and um, my my conjecture before before all this started was that. The faster you run, the more air resistance you have to overcome. So therefore, at really high speeds, you're going to get sort of a deferential um, higher reported power. And um, in this runner, they, I had them do a three-minute test and 10-minute test. In the three-minute test, uh, at least initially when he was um, really running uh, fast and high intensity, um, is, is uh, power to overcome uh, air resistance is about 17%. In the 10 minute, and that, and this is a three minute test, so you're talking about uh, probably 120, 125% of, mm -hmm. of threshold of FTP. In the 10 minute test, which is probably closer to 110, 111% of threshold, um, he was uh, the, the, the air power to overcome resistance air resistance was more like nine or ten percent so there was a differential and then in between those two tests he was running just easy uh easy aerobic pace or easy aerobic power which was less than 80 percent of threshold power and at that pace or power intensity it was only about two to three percent uh that the overcoming power, uh, air resistance so um, it, it was responsive in that sense. And I should add that in this test, wind speeds were pretty constant at, at three miles per hour at uh, you know, 10 meters high, the, the, the standard for reporting at weather stations. So that's, that, that's less than one meter per second. That's less than a half a meter per second at, at ground at 1.5 meters. So we're talking about low, constant, uh, very calm conditions. So the, what we're seeing in terms of this change in, in power to overcome air resistance was primarily due to changes in intensity and speed. So it looks pretty good, um, but uh, I want to see it across more runners and, and more time. That makes sense. And this will be this will make the folks that I coach happy uh, because sometimes they'll be running in a you know they'll be, they'll they'll uh, they'll do a run and they'll report back it's like well coach my I was slower here because it was a terrible headwind and uh, it felt really hard and uh, I had to work super hard but I was running slower and now they'll have they'll have proof they'll have numbers to uh, to back that stuff up or you can't oh, yeah. hide behind excuses <laughs> right. now right right I I I I think. Um... It, I I really I'm excited about it. If you can't tell, I'm excited that that it it just it's an incremental gain in making what's reported more true to metabolic demand. I think uh, you know in the in the triathlon world, I, you know, 
I, I was never a triathlete, but it seems to me that that the exposure they have on some of the run courses, it, it could be a, a pretty big advantage. Yeah, I believe that. And uh, Andrew, being our, our resident aerodynamicist, uh, I think I can safely <laughs> safely call you that. Um, you did uh, you did some math to calculate what the uh, what the power costs of running at speed would be. Do you want to share those? Yeah, absolutely. So um, first off, the the different uh, speeds that you'd mentioned in the critical power test having you know eighty percent, one hundred and ten percent, and one hundred twenty five percent of the the threshold power essentially, assuming that correlates approximately to pace, um, you often see that uh, there's a cubic increase in in power requirements as your speed goes up. So that means a small increase in speed can have a huge increase in power. So it's not a surprise to hear that it was a very small component at the lower speeds and a very large or becoming a larger component at higher speeds. Uh, The the number I came up with, and this is just a very ballpark estimate, but uh, it was based on a CDA of 0.8, which might be on the high side, but that was around 50 watts at 15 kilometers an hour. So this is four minute kilometer pace, which is quick for most people, not elite runner speed, but it's uh, it's a good pace. And it's where aerodynamics start to make the crossover into becoming a more impactful part of the, the, the whole force equation. Um, but 50 watts is, it's a decent contribution. And if you're reporting power that includes that 15 watt or sorry 50 watts or doesn't include it then that's going to have a big impact on whether you think you're running at your threshold or whether you're not and whether you're running way over it or way under it i absolutely I so, and even yeah. if that number is off by you know uh, even if it's like a factor of two error right and if you're somebody whose threshold might be 300 watts for you know running threshold 300 watts and even if the you know Andrew's range is, is 50 to 70 even if it's like 30 even if it's 30 then that's a 10% difference. And that is that is a very significant difference. 10% is a big deal. Let me let me uh, respond to what Andrew just said. We'll just compare because this runner during the 10-minute test averaged right around, it's somewhere between four, four minutes per kilometer to uh, four, 10 mm-hmm. per kilometer. Um, let me get let me get an exact average for that. Um, so this runner was uh, at 409 per kilometer, uh, which is uh, four meters per second, roughly 4.01 meters per second. Now let let me switch charts um, really quick, and we'll see what that power was. So the the Power was running between 35 and 44 watts, um, and, and the average was 35.5 watts at that speed. So it's yeah, it's in the ballpark of what Andrew. Yeah, and it would depend quoted. on the size of the runner, right? If you had somebody who's you know some who's someone who's small, obviously their it's, CDA is going to be much smaller. Again, that CDA, yeah. Exactly. So the CDA is a, is, a, is definitely a factor. Well, I'm glad I was in the right ballpark there. <laughs> no, no, it's the other way around. I'm glad Stride was in the right ballpark. And I, I will reinforce that by saying these are very approximate results for myself. Like the 0.8 CDA was essentially just pulled out of my back pocket as 
yeah, maybe roughly two to three times the the drag of a cyclist. So, um, yep. but yeah, it, it sounds like it's and for what it's, from what it's worth, I think uh, Stride has a white paper where where they they review some of the research that was done in these calculations, and um, they I think it, it's similar to what you're describing. That sounds great. Um, I, I will. Uh... I will mention the fact that we've spent a lot of time talking about, uh, you know, how Stride works and and how it's useful and how uh, various environmental and perhaps gear um, factors affect the measurement. We haven't talked too much about um, about the 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 exact how to of uh, of using all of this stuff, and uh, we're not going to do that today. I think that's a good opportunity to have uh, Steve uh, back on our show, uh, just in the interest of uh, of not having a two hour podcast. But in the meantime, there is an excellent um, an excellent episode that he did with our our friend Michael Erickson of um, Scientific Triathlon, which we'll link to in the show notes if folks want to get a sense of some of the ways to um, uh, to use uh, to use all of this wonderful data. But there is one thing that I do want um, Steve to talk to, and this was in a an article he wrote that he sent to me before our chat, and that is. Uh, it's going to be relevant to our triathlon listeners, which probably makes up most of our of our folks. And that is how to adapt um, your your pacing strategy if you're using power for pacing to triathlon races, comparing and in comparison to open run races. Cool. So the um, the you know the the thing with triathlon is that the run is coming with a lot of. Uh, a pre-fatigue condition. I mean, you're after a swim and, and bike leg. Uh, so the the power that you're going to produce as a percentage of your threshold, the FTP, in a uh, a run leg of of a triathlon is going to be less than than um, a fresh legged race. So, for example, um, 10k a fresh leg is going to be typically run at 100 104 percent. Of FTP, where in Olympic distance a triathlon it's going to be 90 to 95. In some athletes, it might be higher. Um, and I'll, I'll discuss that in a second. Um, in a half marathon, fresh leg 94 to 98 percent of threshold, and it, for uh, in a triathlon, it's 85 to 90. And uh, marathon. 88 to 93 when it's fresh leg in, in, in a um, full Ironman, it's 75 to 80% uh, in many athletes. And of course, the variation uh, between fresh leg and, and, um, and uh, your triathlon leg is going to be very individual depending on your, you know, which, how, how hard you do your bike leg, uh, your, your, sure. your own fatigue resistance, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, uh, but there are ways, and um, you know, maybe if you link that article, that we uh, we can look into, or the, the the listeners can read on various ways to find out what might be the most appropriate for them. Absolutely, yeah, and uh, just to save our listeners having to ver- frantically jot down these numbers, we're absolutely gonna gonna post a link to that article that uh, Steve Great. shared with me this morning. Um, and uh, one thing I do want to interrogate as part of that. So as far as, you know, I'm always curious, I I always want to know the answer to the question why. And so I understand in, let's say a sprint, uh, or Olympic race where you're operating, let's say, especially at a sprint race, you know, you're comparing an open 5k, which will generally be run above critical power, 
um, whereas a you know a 5k in um, in a sprint race coming off the bike you in my experience with both with power and pace you're probably lucky to get threshold out of folks maybe a little bit above because of you know metabolic effects or maybe you know, blood acidosis uh, whatever the case may be um, but in a longer race so in a marathon open marathon versus an Ironman marathon, I suspect that, you know, substrate availability, you know, specifically glycogen, uh, would be a big limiter. Does that, does that ring true to you as far as why? Uh, absolutely. I mean, longer races, uh, substrate availability, hydration fueling is very critical in terms of what percentage of threshold is actually realized. But here's the other concept. Power is duration dependent. The longer the duration, the less power you can sustain, right? It's a power duration sure. curve. Well, I think that, you know, the swim bike leg contributes to where the, the run happens on the power duration curve because it's a long, it's deeper into that. So I think power duration uh, is influenced by what comes before. Um, I agree. It's, you've, you've used up some of your duration already. Exactly. The there you go. Conceptually, exactly that. Cool. Cool. All right. Well, I think that just about does it for the, the questions that I have. Uh, Michael, do you have anything else that you wanted to ask Steve? No, I think this is an awesome conversation. I mean, I always have more questions because it's one of those cases where, you know, uh, the more you understand a topic, the more the more it opens up avenues for you know further investigation, which is one of the lovely things. But well, life in general, but this this sports tech <laughs> right. fizz stuff. Um, so I definitely have more questions. But in the interest of you know kind of keeping things to close to an hour, I think this is an excellent place to stop. And then uh, you know we'd we'd always we'd obviously love to have you back on, Steve, to maybe do a deeper dive into uh, a how to um, application for us. That would be really cool. Uh, what I might do is pick up one of these power meters and I can start working with it and maybe have a little bit more of my own background and experience to contribute to the next conversation. I think that'd be pretty cool for a follow-up. Yeah, I've got a discount code. Folks, if anyone's interested in uh, trying a, uh, a, a stride power meter, I don't remember my discount code off the top of my head, but I'll post it in the show notes and it's good for 15% off their, their newest uh, Gen 3 unit. Excellent. Well, I'm going to be using that shortly. Excellent. So I hope my wife isn't listening to this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so Steve, you're, you're a wealth of information and we're going to link to your, um, uh, to the library of, of articles that you've written, but is there anything else that you want us to uh, share with the listeners or uh, you want to plug on your end? Eh, not, not really. I'm not a big uh, plug person, <laughs> but they're welcome to, to, I'm on Facebook. I'm not on other social media. Uh, I'm on Facebook and it's called Paladino Power Project. Um, if if uh, listeners want to come there and and uh, and explore some of the conversations, that's that'd be uh, that'd be great. Awesome. I'm on that. I'm part of that group, and uh, I know Michael uh, of Scientific Triathlons on it too. And there's some uh, some really uh, interesting discussions, both on the the beginner end, so it's not all, all super high end, you know, sports physiology stuff, um, down to really some really nitty gritty stuff that I have to go into and start googling terms. <laughs> so there's a it's a I I will uh, I will second that recommendation of uh, the Paladino Power Project group. Thank you. 
Um, so now we do have a, a, qu a question from one of our listeners. So Steve, um, you feel free to stick around. This is probably going to be more of a of a Michael Andrew <laughs> bit. We might be it might take us ten or fifteen minutes. Um, uh, but uh, if you like to sign off, then by all means, uh, I'll say thank you one more time for joining us. Well, it's been a pleasure, but I'll, I'll hang out. I'm curious. Okay. Sure. Um, so, so uh, as uh, many of our listeners who uh, pay attention to or participate in triathlon are aware, uh, last Sunday I saw a pretty cool race um, in uh, in Canada in Mont Tremblant. It was the full distance race, one of uh, only two in Canada. Uh, there was a lot to talk about in that race. Um, but today we had a listener question from uh, David Noseworthy, who is uh, a friend of mine from Toronto, fellow triathlete. Um, and he was looking through the Instagram feed of uh, Nathan Killam, who was uh, a former uh, guest of our show. Hey, Nathan. And uh, who had a really terrific performance with a third overall um, in, the, in the pro men's field. And David picked out a, a, a photo of Nathan descending. Uh, I'm not sure exactly where on the course, perhaps Duplessis, um, in, a, in a tuck position. So this is always an interesting conversation because... Uh, the aero position, so this is the standard pedaling position for a triathlete, is already quite aerodynamic. So the question was, how much more efficient is this position? And then maybe is it faster at a certain speed? Maybe when you spin out, when you don't have the, the gearing to push any more watts. Um, so I'll turn that question over to Andrew. Yeah, it's definitely a good question. And I had actually done some work with uh, Alan Havda, who is a, a previous um, interviewee as well. And he was concerned for the Norseman race, uh, which he did quite well on second place. Um, and he was just looking at the the impact and the number of descents that he was going down. And I think his top speed on that course was like 98 kilometers an hour. Uh, Holy so, yeah, so faster than I'd want to go on a bike, especially when you're stretching yourself out like that. Um, but Tremblant in particular, um, and I know last year when I did the race, they gave this as a warning saying the descent was particularly dangerous because I think someone, there's a couple blind corners and in previous years, someone had had a flat going around a blind corner and basically there was someone else who came flying down the hill at 80 kilometers an hour in a tuck and they were kind of in a compromised position. Uh, and then I think someone had actually crashed and, and may have died as a result of the injuries. Um, I'm not 100% sure that that happened exactly like that, but um, there was something along those lines. So they gave us a big safety talk before the race saying, be careful on this descent. You know, Max, you're going to save five seconds on on a 10 to 15 hour race. Um, so their, their point was safety should be more important. Um, and for the most part, I agree, but, uh, it's hard to convince pro athletes that, um, that they shouldn't get all the, the extra time that they can. So you, you might save, um, like the Duplessis descent. Uh, I think the fast parts are maybe 15 to 20 seconds long, maybe a little bit longer. So you may gain five kilometers an hour, but, uh, so that's, essentially one meter per second. So you, you might make up a distance of five to 10 meters on where, uh, where you would otherwise be. Um, but as long as you're not putting yourself in a position where you can't control the bike, then yeah, you'll gain a little bit, but an average speed for someone is in the range of 10 meters per second. So 
really that if you gain five to 10 meters, you're really only a second ahead of where you might have been otherwise for a short descent. So the, the Norseman example is a little more relevant because those were quite long descents where it might be five to 10 minutes uh, where you're at higher speeds and not able to pedal. But um, yeah, you're still putting yourself at the mercy of the course. If something, you know, if an animal runs out in front of you, if uh, you hit some gravel, um, then you're at a little bit more risk there. Um, so that's that's my two cents there. Um, aerodynamically, yes, you can be more efficient, but uh, it's yeah, maybe it's more of a psychological benefit for for yourself and against the competitors than anything else. That's a good safety disclaimer. And when I said it was Duplessis, I'm totally taking a flyer. There is another descent uh, down a straightaway on the highway. Yes. Um, so it may have been there that he was doing this, and that descent's a lot longer, and it's also a lot safer because it's you can see way ahead. But it is more open. So you get uh, you get more crosswinds and, and sudden winds that could throw you off. And I did notice that when I was doing the descent, that near the bottom when you're picking up speed, especially with deep dish wheels, um, you get that uh, the lift effect. So essentially the, the wheels are acting like airfoils. And oh, yeah. a small wind gust can actually result in a very, very large steering torque or steering force that can move you more than you would expect. For sure. But as far as like CDA gains, would you would you hazard a guess if he was if Nathan was, you know, we can probably take a flyer at what his CDA on his Ventum is and then going down into that tuck. Have you did you test Alan when you when in that tuck position? Uh, we tested him in. Yeah, there was a tuck position that he had done and it was him basically putting his chin between the arrow bars and he actually uses morph bars. So he had them spread, but, uh, it was putting, he lowered his between the arms bottle so that he could fit his head lower. Um, oh, I wonder why he did that. Cause I saw that in photos. Yeah. Is, that, is that faster? It's certainly harder to reach. Yeah. Anyway. So that was the history behind that. Um, but yeah, we, we had tested Cody Beals with a, a pretty crazy descent position where he'd essentially had his saddle resting on his diaphragm, uh, which oh. he said was incredibly painful and it only saved like 10% <laughs> of the, the drag. So it was a little bit, but for him to get in that position, like you hit the smallest bump or anything you you're not expecting oh, and you're done. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, sometimes those marginal gains are, are not worth the price you end up pay for them, paying for them or potential, the potential price you, uh, you may end up paying for them. Yeah. Marginal gains can be marginal choices sometimes. <laughs> Very well said. Um, well, everyone, uh, once again, we're going to thank our, our guest, uh, Steve Palladino today. And, um, Andrew, is there anything that you want to share with listeners? Um, aside from the fact that I'll probably be buying a run power meter, I don't think there's anything else to share at this point. That's uh, That sounds like a sound plan. Um, so thank you, everyone, for listening. As always, do uh, rate and review us on iTunes. And please spread the love. Tell your friends. Uh, we are, you know, as, as much as it sometimes sounds like Andrew and I are kind of in our own little world, uh, <laughs> ostensibly we're doing this to, uh, to share what we love and know about the sport. And uh, if you help us spread the word, um, you are helping us out in a big way. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>